You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning again, friends. This fall, we've been studying the really fascinating story of Saul and David in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. I hope that What you're seeing week by week is that these are not just some interesting old stories, but that we are actually learning our own story. And that's actually the point of the Bible. I hope that you're learning too how to read the Bible, that the Bible, and kids, I really want you to hear this, the Bible is not just a collection of old inspirational stories of heroes, nor is it just a collection of uh, uh, platitudes that we're supposed to memorize and do, but the Bible is actually an invitation into a new way of life. It's an invitation into a new story that is centered on the person of Jesus. And that's what Christianity is. Christianity is not how to be good, or it's not assenting to a certain set of of beliefs. It is actually an invitation of God into a new story that is centered on the person of Jesus. And so uh, we want to turn this morning to the end of 1 Samuel. You know, I thought, I was very tempted, um, since it's Halloween, to choose this very fascinating story from 1 Samuel 28. You should go back and read it later. Samuel has died and Saul is desperate for wisdom. So he dresses up in a costume and goes and finds a witch and performs necromancy to summon Samuel from the dead. The Bible's crazy, y'all. So uh, you can read that this afternoon for your Halloween devotion. Um, But Uh, This morning, I I was having trouble figuring out how I was going to preach on that. So this morning, um, I'm preaching instead um, from 1 Samuel 22 and 24. Just a reminder where we were. So last week, we saw David skyrocket to celebrity by taking down the the giant Goliath. And he's immediately brought into the inner courts of Saul, given a prominent place in his army, a prominent place at his court. But very quickly, Saul becomes consumed with jealousy, paranoia, and envy, and he becomes obsessed with eliminating David as his rival. And so it forces David on the run to become a fugitive, literally living in the wilderness in caves. So that's where we pick up this morning. In fact, the whole last part of 1 Samuel is 15 stories of David running as a fugitive in the wilderness. So that's where we're going to hear this from 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1 and 2, and then 24, 1 through 10. So hear God's word. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. And then chapter 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Mm -hmm. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, Hey, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But afterwards, David was conscience stricken 
for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And so Saul finished, left the cave, and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, and there he saw David up on the cliff, and David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground, and he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say to you, David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in that cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. Far, far up in the north of Canada, in the Yukon region, there is a man named Bill Donaldson. And if you ran into Bill on the street, you would think he's a pretty ordinary guy. He's a woodworker. Uh, He has 492 Facebook friends. He likes to watch Netflix. But one big difference between Bill and everybody else is that he lives in a cave, a cave. For the last 24 years, he's lived in a small cave above the Yukon River across from a tiny little gold rush town named Dakota City, Dawson City. Uh, I actually have a picture of him in his cave. See, His cave is fully equipped with two LED lights, a wood stove, cooking facilities, and a bed. He lives there with his two dogs. He is known as Caveman Bill. You can Google him, Caveman Bill. And over the years, he's become a minor celebrity, a somewhat extreme example of living off the grid, living lightly in a very different kind of way. Now, For most of us here this morning, this strikes us as utterly bizarre and unappealing. Why would anyone want to live in a cave? Well, I have some bad news for you this morning, my dear friends. If we take our text this morning seriously, we learn that everybody, everyone here at some point has to live in a cave. Not a literal cave, although for some of you, you never know. But what the cave represents, a season, a time of darkness, confusion, suffering, dislocation, and isolation. The cave is that experience. At some point, everyone has to live in that. Look, David is going to be the king. But before he is the king, there is the cave. And that's the lesson of this text. That's the lesson for us. No one gets the glory without the cave. No one becomes the person that you actually really want to be and that God wants you to be. No one becomes that without first living in the cave. So let's look at our text this morning. We're going to look at just a few things. First, the experience of the cave. And then second, the temptation of the cave. And then third, hope for us in the cave. So first, the experience of the cave. Let's just review together uh, what's happened to David. It's pretty crazy. So David was just this kid, this teenage kid, anonymously shepherding sheep in a random pasture. And this old crazy dude named Samuel shows up, yanks him out of the field, pours oil on his head, and tells him he's going to be the next king of Israel. Well, next thing he knows, he's in the spotlight, the only one courageous enough to face down this giant named Goliath. And what do you know? He kills him. 
and immediately he's catapulted to becoming the celebrity of Israel. And everybody's singing songs about him. They think he's amazing. And he's given this high place in Saul's army. He's given an important place in Saul's court. He's given a seat at the king's table. And you might be thinking, man, everything's looking good for this guy. But all of a sudden, almost in a moment's notice, everything is turned upside down. He is now living as a homeless fugitive in the wilderness. He's running for his life. He's scavenging for food. He's cut off from his family. His whole life is turned upside down. Literally, he is living in caves. Now, what's, what's, what's cool about the Bible is that even though stories like this lack emotional detail, just because they're ancient stories and they often omitted some of that stuff out, we can read these stories in parallel with the book of Psalms because David wrote a lot of the Psalms. And so we can actually know what David was thinking and feeling during this time. There's four Psalms. You can write this down if you'd like to and read them later. Um, 34, 56, 57, and 142, that if you look at the Psalm and look at the little um, description underneath the number, it says, a miktam of David when he was in a cave. And so Psalm 57, for example, says, David says, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid ravenous beasts, the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Psalm 142, which is one of my favorite Psalms. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble to him. And then listen to this. This is just raw. There's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one. No one cares for my soul. See, this is a guy who feels bereft, who, who feels attacked and abandoned and alone. He he's, he's feels like he's in the dark and he doesn't know where God is. God made him a promise. You're gonna be the next king of Israel. And here instead, he's living as a scavenger fugitive in a cave instead. Sure doesn't sound like God is keeping his promises. And that's the experience of the cave. The experience of the cave is, of course, for David, a literal cave, but it's also what it represents. It's, a, it's abandonment, right? It's, this, it's, a, it's a season of deep and terrible sometimes spiritual dryness where you actually don't know where God is and you feel like God maybe has even abandoned you. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in the cave? I have. I know some of you have, and I know that there are some of you who are in the cave right now. It's when you feel confused, disoriented, you're really struggling with doubt. It feels like a lot of things that were really important to you have been taken from you. Some of your deepest prayers have not been answered. You are really struggling to sense the presence of God. Uh, even God's help feels non-existent. Unfortunately, we don't know what to do with the cave very well as Americans, and especially as American Christians, because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with our theology of happiness and blessing. I'm too blessed to be stressed, you know? <laughs> you know, the cave doesn't fit with that at all. And so if someone's going through an experience of darkness or doubt, then, then it actually makes church people feel uncomfortable because we just assume that something is wrong with that person if they're going through doubt and struggle. 
And so, you know, you might've had this happen to you. You're going through a time of real deep spiritual dryness or doubt or struggle. And, it's, and a, and a, and a well-meaning Christian friend comes up to you and says, have you tried reading your Bible? You know? Have you tried praying more or getting up earlier or adjusting some of your habits? Right? We, we just assume that if something is wrong with someone, if they're going through a time of spiritual doubt, then something's wrong with them and it can be fixed. But see, the ancient wisdom tradition knows better because the cave has been a dominant archetype in the ancient history of storytelling and literature. So, and it always signifies the necessary time of trial and testing that a person has to go through to achieve maturity. So Odysseus has to go into a cave to face the Cyclops and he comes out a different man. Giovanni de Pietro de Barnadone loses everything, has a health crisis, goes into a cave, wrestles with God, comes out St. Francis of Assisi. Gandalf the Grey <laughs> goes into the depths to face the Balrog and he emerges, Gandalf the White. And of course, Yoda must send young Luke into the cave and Empire Strikes Back to face his own demons on his journey of becoming a Jedi. See, all of these stories that we love, they're all rooted in something that's true. And it's a theology of the cave. And it's a theology that nobody likes and nobody wants to face. And it's simply this, you will never be the person you were made to be without the cave. You cannot become a person of depth, maturity, wisdom, courage, without the cave. There's no glory without the cave. David gets 20 chapters of being the king, but it's only after 20 chapters of living in caves. Anyone who has anything to do with God has to live in the cave for a bit because you will never get the glory without it. In one of his most brilliant books, uh, C.S. Lewis writes in the Screwtape Letters about uh, two demons, an older demon counseling his demon protege about how to ruin the life of his patient. And the young demon at one point is elated because his patient is going through a season of real serious doubt and spiritual dryness. And the demon is excited because he thinks that this is a sign of his own success. But the older demon, Scrutate, writes to him saying, no, this is not your doing at all. It is actually the work of our enemy, God, who allows his creatures to go through such seasons. And so he writes this to his young protege. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, God, our enemy, relies on the valleys even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper valleys than anyone else. It is during such valley periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. He wants them to learn how to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And then look at this. He says, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. Do you hear that? I mean, it's, again, it's, this is not theology that you want to hear, <laughs> but it's true. It's biblical theology here. 
that it is God himself who allows his creatures to go into the cave. That God himself allows the struggle and the doubt and the dryness because it's only there that we learn how to truly trust him. The cave is the only time in your life where you can know if you truly love for God's sake and not what God can give you. It's the place where we experience God in the depths and truly learn to know him and love him and rely on him. In Psalm 142, David says, I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. And by the end of the Psalm, he says, I cry to you, O Lord, you are my only refuge. Eugene Peterson said, the cave is the classroom where David learns what the word refuge means. It's the classroom. It is only because of the darkness of his despair that he's able to learn to find God as his only strength. So here's the simple point of this first, this simple lesson of this first point, friends. If you are in the cave, take heart. It is not a happy place. It is not a good place. But it is a place that leads to the place of glory. And for everybody else, I want to tell you this. You need a theology of the cave. Being an American will not ever give you what you need to face suffering that is inevitable, that is coming. You need a theology of the cave to know that this is not an elective. This is part of the required curriculum of the Christian life. That you need it so that when the darkness comes into your life, you won't be surprised, you won't be undone, and you won't give up. That the cave is part of what it means to know and follow this God. Second, though, what's the temptation of the cave? Because I already mentioned that we don't like this. We will do everything we can to avoid it. We all prefer, I mean, who wants to live in the cave apart from caveman Bill? You know, nobody. All the rest of us want to live in the nice open air outside, right? Or in a comfy mansion. That's where we want to be. So when we find ourselves in a cave, a place of struggle or trial, we often look for ways to avoid it and to skip over all that hard stuff to get straight to the glory. That's the temptation of the cave. So check out what happens in this story. So this is, you know, the Bible is so funny sometimes, not in a way that we think of humor, but in its own way. So kids, listen to this. In 1 Samuel 24, David and his men are hiding in a cave. Saul and his army of 3,000 men are hunting him down. And in an unexpected humorous twist, Saul has to go to the bathroom. Just like any road trip, man. You got to stop sometimes. You got to, you know, go and find the pit stop. Go relieve yourself. So Saul, you know, in the cliffs overlooking the Dead Sea in the desert of Engedi, there are literally hundreds of caves pockmarking the cliffs. And Saul just happens to go right into the cave where David and his men were hiding. And here he is, literally, with his pants down, the most vulnerable position. And, his, and David's men are like, this is it. You know, they're in the back of the cave. This is it, David. This is the moment that God promised to you. You are the next king right now. Take your sword. Take him out. We don't have to do this anymore. We don't have to live in the wilderness. We don't have to dwell in this cave. We can end it all right now. So David takes the sword and he creeps up. And I'm not sure what happens. You know, he has some kind of change of heart, but instead of killing him, he takes his sword and he cuts off a tiny little corner of his robe. He must've been very quiet, right? And then he creeps back. And then it says, this is kind of weird. It says right after he did it, he's cut to the heart and he's conscious stricken. And he says, the Lord forbid I should do such a thing to the Lord's anointed. He rebukes his men. He tells them, no, don't, 
Don't kill him. Don't kill him like you want to. What's going on here? Well, listen, the robe, we might have seen this earlier in 1 Samuel, the robe is a symbol of the kingdom. It's a symbol of kingship. And David is conscience-stricken because even by taking one piece of David's robe, of Saul's robe, he knows he's giving into the temptation of taking the kingdom before the time. Taking the kingdom before God wants him to, rather than waiting for the timing of God to give it to him. He is skipping. He's tempted to skip over the time of suffering and get straight to the throne. Does that make sense? That's the temptation of the cave. You know um, how with like DVRs, like if you, if you can't watch the ball game right when it starts, you can start recording it. And then like an hour later, you go and sit down and you start watching the game, but you've digitally recorded the first hour. And the first time I was at my friend's house with this, I just thought it was sorcery, you know, because you're sitting there and you're watching, all of a sudden it comes to the commercial and you just hit fast forward and you fast forward right through the commercials and get to the next inning. It's amazing, right? And kids, wouldn't it be amazing if you could do that? with your life, right? Like you're sitting in school and your teacher's just going on and on. You just hit fast forward, you go straight to recess or you fast forward the whole year and you go straight to summer break or, or, parent, or adults, you fast forward through surgery or you fast forward through tax season or you, you know, whatever it is. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could do that? We could fast forward through the times of struggle so that we could get straight to the good stuff. And this is what David is tempted to do here, to skip the suffering, to fast forward through the cave, to get right to the throne. But he knows somehow it's not God's way. He chooses to believe God's promise that the kingdom will come in good time, even though he cannot see how or when. He chooses to continue to live in caves in the wilderness rather than preempt God's timing and take his life into his hands. So that's the question for you. How might you be tempted to fast forward through the necessary time of trials in your own life? What are ways that you try to avoid hardship or suffering or pain because you just really, really, really don't want to be in the cave? For some of us, I think it's distraction. Rather than face what's difficult or work through what's painful, we numb ourselves through entertainment or alcohol or work just to keep ourselves from facing anything that is really hard. For others of us, it's avoidance. Uh, Maybe there's something going on in your relationship or your marriage or your family or a workplace where you really do have to address something that is really, really difficult that you know will create a time of struggle, but you don't wanna do it, so you just keep quiet. You don't do anything, or you just hit eject and find another person or another relationship or another work or another marriage that is less trouble. For others of us, is maybe it's just giving up. You know, you're in a season that is so difficult or painful that rather than persevering in hope and trusting God in the dark, you just rather would throw in the towel and give up entirely. That's my, that's my, that's the choice that I tend to choose. It will be different for all of us because nobody wants to be in the cave. And we all look for creative ways to fast forward through these experiences and get to the glory as fast as possible. But I want you to hear, hear me, brothers and sisters, to do this is to actually give into the temptation of the cave, to take matters into our own hands and to forfeit the courage, wisdom, and maturity that the cave can actually bring. So how do we do it? How do we endure faithfully in these experiences of the cave? 
Well, one last thing, how we find hope in the cave. How can we live faithfully in these inevitable seasons of cave dwelling? Well, let me just draw out a few quick lessons here that we learn in this text. First, learn how to lament. When we look at the Psalms that David wrote during this season, we see David showing us how to stay engaged with God when you're in a really, really difficult season of your life. He laments. He cries out for mercy. He registers his complaints in bitterness with God. See, our tendency when we find ourselves in caves, when we feel that God has closed himself off to us, our tendency is just to return the favor and close ourselves off from him. You know, God's hidden himself from me, so I, I'll hide myself from him. But the invitation is instead to follow in David's example and to practice lament. Lament is an ancient form of prayer that very few Americans know anything about. And it is taking all of your anger, all of your fear, all of your rage, all of your insecurity, all of your doubt, and just praying, singing it out to God. This is not sentimental piety that sponge paints over the truth and the raw realities of life. This is, this is truth prayed out of a despairing soul. God invites us to do that. Spurgeon writes this, our God is not the God of the hills only, but of the valleys also. He is God of both sea and land. He heard Jonah when the disobedient prophet was at the bottom of the mountains and the earth with her bars seemed to be about him forever. Wherever you are, you can pray. Wherever you lie sick, you can pray. There is no place to which you can be banished where God is not near. There is no time of day or night when his throne is inaccessible. He's inviting you to bring your cries of bitterness to him. And sometimes you don't even know what to say. I went through a really multi-year season of intense spiritual desert when I was pastoring you. And I didn't even know how to pray. So I would just take out these Psalms and I would just let them pray for me. Just let those words be my own words. I sink in despair, my spirit ebbing away. See the traps hidden in my path. There's not a soul who cares. I'm up against the wall. There's no exit. It's just me all alone. I cry out, you're my last chance, God, my only hope for life. Let these Psalms teach you how to lament. Another thing that we need in the cave is community. One of the things I love about this story is that David is not alone in the cave. He's got these 400 people with him. And who are these people? Well, look at chapter 22, verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. <laughs> oh my gosh. Can we, can we print that and put that as our mission statement for our church? You know, <laughs> let's all bitter in soul gathered around the king to whom David points. Y'all, um, when, when you're in distress, when you're in a cave, a lot of times you don't want to be with people. You want to be isolated. You want to be by yourself. You want to nurse your own pain, right? And that's okay for a little bit. But at some point, you've got, to, you've got to see the other people that are there with you in the cave. You've got to open up. You've got to see that God gives you community as a way to survive and endure the cave. So if you're in the cave right now, I just want to plead with you, don't cut yourself off. See that there are others who are bitter in soul, 
who would love to be with you in the cave and be open to the gifts they might have for you. And at the same time, if you're not in the cave right now, but you know someone in this room who is, how might you reach out to them in love? How could you remind them that they are not alone? And listen, don't do that thing where you just tell them how to get better. Don't try to fix them. Don't try to get them out of the cave. Go into the cave and just sit with them. I just read the amazing new biography by, by Wynne Collier of Eugene Peterson, the great pastor. And a woman told the story when she was going through a long season of spiritual doubt and dryness, and she went in to see her pastor, Eugene, and she told him of her sorrows. And instead of explaining to her how she can recover from it, he sat there with her in silence for an hour. This is what we do for cave dwellers. And this is how the church can change from becoming a weekly event of inspirational music and speech or just a religious version of the country club down the street. This is how we can actually become a real vulnerable community of people who are holding on to God, who are holding on to each other. We're cave, we're cave dwellers. One last thing. See that Jesus is with you in the cave. Where is God when you're in the cave? When I've been there, um, I frankly sometimes don't even know where God is. I feel like maybe he's up there somewhere, maybe, maybe listening somewhere. Sometimes you feel like, oh, maybe God like throws in a flashlight, throws in some food. Maybe he's throwing down a rope so that you can crawl right out yourself. Where is God when you're in the cave? The gospel that we dare to proclaim as Christians dares to say that God is in the cave, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, that he is God who has moved into our wilderness to enter down into our cave with us. That he is not just high and holy, he is meek and lowly. And he has entered into our wilderness in the person of Jesus, the one to whom David points. Jesus too was driven into the wilderness. Do you remember? Do you remember Matthew 4 after his baptism and he was driven by the spirit into the wilderness and there he met the tempter, the snake, the Satan who gave him the remote, told him he could fast forward right now. Just bow down to me, prostrate yourself, jump off this mountain. Just do it, man. You can skip over all the suffering and get straight to the throne right now. No, he said. And then in the garden, he's facing the most horrific cave imaginable. He's like any human being, wants nothing to do with it. He cries out to his father, if there's any way to take this cup from me, do it now, please. But he surrenders. And he's nailed to the cross. And Mark says that in the moment of his crucifixion, the sun is blotted out. The whole world becomes a cave as the son of God cries out in lament, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he cries out and he dies and he's buried and he's put in a cave. So next time you wonder, where is God? He's in the cave. 
Elie Wiesel wrote his great memoir of the Holocaust, Night. And as he and his comrades watched a child hang from a noose, someone in the crowd cried out, where is God? And Elie Wiesel says that he heard from his own heart a voice say, he's there in the noose. No other religion says this. No other message, no other philosophy, no other way of life dares to say that God is in the news, God is in the cave. And so if God is with you in this cave, in the cave of horrific God abandonment and death, if God is with you in this cave, how much more will he be with you in the little caves that you go through right now? The cave is the place, not just where you learn to love God, but where you learn that you are loved where you know the love of God, you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God, where you know that he brings you through and the other side of the cave is resurrection. As Paul says, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. The light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses them all. So friends, the way up is the way down. The way to the resurrection is the way of the cross, and the way to glory is the way of the cave. That's the way it was for David. That's the way it is for Jesus. And for anyone who dares to follow him, that's the way for you too. So do you have a theology of the cave? Without it, I promise you, you're not going to make it. You will run, you will lash out, you will rage, you will do everything you can to avoid what is true. But what a gift that in this word and in this gospel, we get such wisdom for cave dwellers like us and not just wisdom, but a savior who dwells there with us. And everyone who is in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became their king. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the cave dweller. That though you are high and mighty, the prince of heaven, immune from all pain and suffering, you entered into the cave with us, the cave that none of us will ever have to endure. Literal God, abandonment, death, hell, and judgment. We thank you that through your resurrection, we have hope, and we know now that you are in the cave with us. I do pray, especially for anybody here this morning, who is really just about to give up hope and they don't know what to do and they're utterly confused and they feel bereft and they feel alone and cut off from you. Help us to find them. Help us to find them so that we can sit with them. And would you find them, God? And would you speak hope to them? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.